Not a matter of if, but when a crisis could drastically affect your world. I'm Rashini Rajkumar, crisis strategist, licensed attorney, and host of The Crisis Files. In each case file, we explore a real-world crisis or a ripped-from-the-headlines challenge. My crisis squad and I are here to find solutions. We also talk with thought leaders and office holders who often find themselves in the hot seat. In all cases, our suggestions are meant to help you handle your own crisis or prevent crises from happening. We do not provide legal, financial, medical, or PR advice for particular situations, but strongly recommend you seek out professionals to help with your specific need. Today, lobbyist and former Minnesota Senate Majority Leader Amy Koch is here. Amy's background includes intelligence work in the U.S. Air Force, business ownership, and politics. Notably, Amy became the first woman to hold the title of Minnesota Senate Majority Leader in 2011. She's appeared on national and international media for her political insights. Plus, she co-hosts Wrong About Everything, a podcast with a bipartisan take on politics. She's here to share an insider's take for the case file I call Leadership Vacuum. From politics to business, we are living in a crisis of leadership. Doing the right thing often takes a back seat to doing the easy thing. In politics, extreme voices on the right and left squeeze out the middle. The result? Little actual work gets done for the American people, and the media focus far too much on scandal over policy. As much as we love a good scandal on the crisis files, we also want solutions. Amy, am I wrong about everything here, or is this a drastic change from when you held office? So I think that because I held office until 2012, you were already seeing this happen, whether it's the advent of the 24-hour news program, whether it's Fox, MSNBC, I think that definitely contributed to it. And then social media, Twitter, Facebook, Insta, put that on steroids. And that's, I think, where we've come. Let's talk about the person who wants to become a political leader. When did you decide to run for office and why? So I decided at eight years old. I don't think I'm normal. <laughs> I decided at eight years old that I was going to be the first woman president of the United States. You still, uh, and still, still could right, be, right? still time. I did make first woman majority leader. So I knew all along, and I was always interested in politics. People come to political enlightenment at different stages. I've seen very young. Sometimes you know in college, right? And you see these folks that have just been always political. I wasn't like that. I actually joined the Air Force, worked for the family business for many years, and then I came back to politics. So I ran when I was 32. But oftentimes you see folks kind of as a second career. There's a early retirement or they sort of transition from their existing career into politics. There's a second career in politics for many people as well. I'll also ask you this as a sports fan and, and someone who's known a lot of goalies in her life, whether it's soccer or hockey, they always say the goalie, it kind of takes a certain mindset. They're a little off. <laughs> Would you say someone who wants to run for politics is a little off? I mean, you've now mentioned a lot of different phases, so it could really be anyone running. It really can. I think, unfortunately, again, in this environment, Politics has never been a tickle competition. So right away, it is not for someone with thin skin. It's just not. Whether people were chiseling it on rocks or people were throwing it up on Twitter, there has always been somebody calling out politicians. Given the extreme pressure and attention on politicians, unfortunately, it's not creating the best leaders. Leadership has become very scarce in American politics. 
People will always say, oh, you know, blame the politicians. But I say we have to look at ourselves. We that are voting, that are demanding, that are out there with the pitchforks on Twitter, we create these politicians. And we kind of get what we deserve. And we certainly we get what we ask for. We may think we aren't, but we're getting exactly a reflection of us in our leadership. How much of this is because of political polarization? In the family unit, in a church or synagogue where maybe there's a bent one way or the other, that then you go to the polls with that. Yes, and more than ever. Study after study is showing we are moving to where people think like us. We're becoming so completely siloed. Not just social media. Social media allows us to silo ourselves, right? Your feed will be full of everything that tells you what you want to see, what you want to buy, and what you are thinking. Because that's how the feed works. But it's not just that. We are moving ourselves physically to locations. That's why we also get these more extreme politicians, because all the Republicans live in this area and all the Democrats live in this area. And so those seats are safe. And when a seat is safe, what you get out of that are the extremes. So there's a lot of things contributing to that. But we ourselves are becoming completely polarized without even knowing it. And again, it's been in the last decade. It certainly predates Trump. People always want to kind of go back to 2016. We started our podcast, Wrong About Everything, which is two Republicans, two Democrats, in 2012, because we saw then what was happening with polarization, and we wanted to find a way to have a conversation about that. And during your tenure in the Minnesota Senate and in other political positions you held, did you see polarization then? It's so interesting, because when I started, I went in with the idea that the Senate was going to be polarized, that it was going to be Republicans over here, Democrats over there. And pretty soon I realized that I didn't agree with my fellow Republicans on everything. And I had Democrats that had a lot of things in common. I worked on energy issues and there was cross-pollination there. So people think, again, because of the news and because of how we talk, and I do think it has gotten more extreme. When I got in there, I realized that 85% of the issues are actually not partisan in any way. They're just people have different ideas of how to accomplish something. It's those hot button issues that is driving the conversation, that is driving the population of America, and it's driving our politicians and our leadership. It seems like from what you're describing, some sort of compromise is what a lot of leaders wanted, but that's been really hurt in the last, I would say, decade. I'll go back to 2011 when I was in the middle of a big budget fight here in Washington. It was President Obama and it was then Speaker John Boehner were in the exact same deadlock over the budget. So Minnesota had a budget deficit of over $5 billion. We had a DFL Democrat governor and we had a Republican Senate and House. For the first time in the Senate in 40 years, this was 2011, no new taxes, no extra spending, right? Tea Party Republican. And on the other side, we had a governor that was very vocal about raising taxes. And the exact same thing was mirroring itself with Boehner and Obama on a federal level. We went into 21 days of shutdown. In Minnesota, that's a state record. And the exact same thing was happening in Washington. And I remember when we finally came to a compromise, by the way, one that we had reached a month before, before shutdown, but then finally Governor Dayton came back and said, okay, fine, we'll do that, which was not to raise taxes, but to find an additional way to spend a little more money. My side, furious. They feel like I had caved. I thought the state was shut down for 21 days. At some point, we have to move on from And at this. some we point, have... are you thinking about the people you are represent? Are you thinking about, right. And and I remember there was some national folks, pundits and everything. Rush Limbaugh was saying, Speaker Boehner, look to Senator Koch and Kurt Zellers to how to solve this. But from a standpoint of like sort of kind of holding out, right? But what always disappointed me about that was we went down a path that wasn't necessary. 
I still have in my boxes an agreement that the governor signed and sent to us on June 30th that we accepted. And then we accepted. We said we had to figure out a little few details. When we came back, he rescinded that offer. And we went into shutdown for 21 days because he received political pressure. And that is really where we seem to be at on a more regular basis today. And by today, I say 2023, but we've seen it. It's gotten worse. Frankly, it's annoying. And one of my favorite things about being a talk show host versus my former life as a TV reporter is I can actually call out these people. I can say it. I can say I'm pissed off. I can say, hello, do you have to balance a budget? I mean, here, I'm a business owner for 17 years. If I ran my business the way these federal politicians are running the country, would have been out of business 15 years ago. It's outrageous, Amy. You don't get to print money, though, right? right. <laughs> you don't, don't get, get to, to print, print money. money. Uh, that would be illegal for you. It's so amazing because it's so frustrating for so many people. And what has also happened is those big issues, remember I said about 85% is really nonpartisan? The partisan is leaking into what is nonpartisan. So people are forced or are taking stands on things that actually don't matter. That as a Republican, I don't, I'm like, well, that's not something I grew up. I grew up in a very conservative Republican family. My grandpa was, you know, he didn't like FDR and he was a farmer that, that FDR was helping in a lot of ways. But I'll look at things, I'll go, that's not some tenant of conservative principles. And yet we're holding on to it like it is. And same thing on the other side. They'll say no to a Republican idea. That's just common sense. Most people think that. And so that's where we're unfortunately evolving. On that note, I need to ask you this. So in one of the weekend editions, January 2023 of the Wall Street Journal, I think it was the review section, could have been the exchange section, but on the cover, it said, could the Republican Party ever become the party of the people? Because I think the Democrats have always been thought of as the party of the people. What's your answer to that, Republican Amy? I wish we could. I wish we would. I think that right now the Republican Party is in a shootout with itself, right? We have a civil war going on. You saw that even with the chair election just recently, right, with Rana, there is a big struggle for the heart and the soul of the GOP. And I would argue we always have been the party of the people. I grew up in a strictly middle class family. Mom and dad bought a little mom and pop business. That is how I grew up. That charity was important and that kindness and, honesty, and generosity maybe. and honesty. Like Those were the conservative principles that I understood. And I don't know what has happened to our party. I'm not excusing the Democrats at all. The things I see in that party, I would be like, well, I'm definitely not a Democrat, but I wonder what is happening to my own party. Well, part of the fun for me being very nonpartisan and running in the middle is that I can say when someone's wrong about everything and really mean it. (laughs) And I don't really care what your stripe is party-wise. I've always been about the people. My question to you, do ethics even matter anymore? So in case file number 28, which we called Crypto Night, our show's attorney who represents the law on this show on the Crisis Files, Steve Silton and I looked at... FTX, uh, that was Sam Bankman-Fried. Now he's been charged with a lot of crimes. Steve Silton talked us through just this whole cryptocurrency and tried to, to teach us about that. It's definitely a case file I recommend everyone listen to if you haven't already. But my question is, do ethics even matter when people like a Sam Bankman-Fried or other names that get a lot of let's say, headlines, recently George Santos. You name it. I don't want to name a bunch of names, but it almost seems like, too, the federal regulators, the politicians aren't doing their job in holding citizens like this accountable, business people like this accountable. No. And this is something that is also new. And this, I do think, came kind of with the advent of President Trump. 
It's this idea that things that he said and did with any other politician before that would have been a disqualifier. There were so many times where I looked at that candidacy and I said, oh, okay, well, now that's it. That's too far. He's gone too far. And the line kept moving. The line just kept moving, you know, whether it was affairs and whether it was statements that he made. Business um, dealings. Business dealings, right. I mean, you could just go on and on and it didn't matter. And so what he did was set the stage for, I don't have to be, as a politician, accountable. I can say whatever I want. And when I'm called out, I just say, well, that's the bias of the X other side, right? You know, you saw the governor in Virginia, right? Blackface in the 90s, by the way. And I thought, oh, well, that's it. That's not going to be acceptable. Guess what? I don't even know that he really apologized. Everyone, he just stayed in office, wrote out the couple news cycles and moved on. I'd gone through some of my own crisis in 2012. And I remember needing that time to step back and I had many people saying, oh, you shouldn't have stepped down. All of these and things. And you were in the headlines. I was in the headlines And your personal life was being picked apart. Picked apart. So I know where I'm saying. I had to step back for my own self-preservation, but also because it was the right thing to do. I knew that I could not do my job properly, that I was not holding myself accountable to my own standards and ethics if I just stayed. And represent and, your constituency right, well. Right. I needed to do what was right and step down. It really wasn't a question for me. I knew what was right. And people said, oh, well, you could battle through and you should, this is right. But I knew that I couldn't do that and do my job, at least for the time being. Now, I also would say that a fall and a failing should not be the end of anyone's career. Especially I don't because like that. America cancel loves, culture. America loves a comeback. Right. And this whole idea of cancel culture, that someone did something in 2007 and they can't make amends. Or get a job again. And or get a whatever. job again. I hate that. But the key is making the amends. And so many times now, we're not about making the amends or trying to make right or do right. And that's a very important part of staying. I want folks to say, I love the comeback. But you have to be deeply sorry. And you have to actually make amends. I had to do that in my own life. I had people that I was accountable that I had to make amends to. What's your advice as someone's looking at themselves, whether they're an office holder or not, in really saying, you know what? I need to make amends. I need to. Is it acceptance first? I mean, what's that process look like? It's humility. And that's not a dirty word. Every politician, everyone out there, a little humility never hurts. And I think that's what I discovered, which unfortunately probably makes me less likely to run for office, but maybe what we need more of in office. I think a little humility and understanding of your place in the world and that you are accountable to people and that your actions have consequences and they can be hurtful. That's a part of it. For those that are thinking about it, it's so much easier once you make amends. Once you say you're sorry and just own it all, it's so free. I say I'm the most dangerous woman in politics today because I'm not afraid. What are you going to say about me? What are you going to do about me? I've owned it. I've stared it in the face. I've apologized to the people I've needed to apologize to. And I don't need to look back anymore. I'm free. So I don't worry about an op-ed. What I say, I mean. And I do it in a kind and respectful way. But I'm not afraid of the blowback because <laughs> I've been through hell. Uh, and so, what do you, you know, bring it. <laughs> Amy Koch, you are a mic drop. Thank you so much. She is a badass. She is a lobbyist. Want more Amy? Check out wrongabouteverything-podcast.com. Today's Crisis Brief is brought to you by Spoke 612 Productions. Number one, ask questions and hold people who represent you accountable. Number two, question what you read on social media. Avoid becoming siloed. Number three, Ethics matter, but a fall shouldn't mean cancellation. 
Making amends is critical to your comeback. Spoke 612 Productions takes your ideas and brings them to life. Linda, Sarah, and Matt are committed to excellence and inclusivity. As a WeBank certified women-owned production company, Spoke 612 inspires awareness and delivers impact through storytelling. When you put your project in their hands, Spoke 612 draws on their own talents and experience to ensure they tell the best possible version of your story. Visit their portfolio at Spoke612.com. Thank you to our podcast producer, Kim Inslee, and our audio genius, Tom Hamilton of Undertone Music. Catch up on all case files at thecrisisfiles.com for the archive plus special video elements. Subscribe to our YouTube page on thecrisisfiles.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at The Crisis Files. I'm Roshini Rajkumar. Join me next time on The Crisis Files.